to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And it's a mini-sode, Brenna. Mini-sode. Yeah. <laughs> so, folks who have been skipping out on the mini-sodes, this is hopefully going to be a little representative of what we're thinking. And today we are talking about the definition of YA literature, Brenna. Yes, I'm excited. So this was prompted by an email from... Daryl. Hi, Daryl. And uh, had a really good point that like maybe we should just talk about like what YA literature is and how we think of it and what fits the category and what doesn't and people's perceptions of it. So that's what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. And I think it's particularly relevant because we have read quite a few books that some people may look at and say, "Mm, is that really YA? We've read some that we've got to the end of and went, oh, that wasn't YA. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So folks, we are going to be drawing together some of the conversations we've had over the last year. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go back, I would probably recommend our very first episode, Brenna, where you talked about the shifting change in adolescence, like the definition of of how adolescence came to be yep. in our very first episode. And then also, most explicitly, our episode on the Virgin Suicides, which is the text in question where it was like, oh, this is not YA at all. Yes. And uh, the other one where we talked about what is and isn't YA is, oh, goodness, I can't. it's the one with all the witches. Discovery of witches. Yes, <laughs> we talked about correct. what is and isn't YA there, too. Yeah. Still our second most listened to episode. Not at all a work of YA. <laughs> <laughs> And yet, that lady porn brings in so many listeners. Oh, yeah. That's depressing. (laughs) Anyway, do we want to uh, do some old school homework recap before we jump in? Yeah. So one of the things that we have not had a chance to talk about yet, because we recorded our January forecast back in December, Mm -hmm. so we have not talked about how we (laughs) handled our holiday to-do list. And Brenna, you were joking last week during Anne of Green Gables that you had nothing to contribute but I'm sure this isn't entirely true it's not entirely true but I promise to read a number of books (laughs) and I promise (laughs) to even like finish a book that I've been working on since the summer didn't do it Oh, Brenna. I know. I know. And it's so funny. So one thing I will tell listeners is I'm not going to pretend I get like an overwhelming number of DMs about the show, but I do get occasionally people asking if I have a Goodreads. And I didn't have a Goodreads for a really long time because when I was uh, writing for Book Riot, I had a really uncomfortable interaction with uh, an author on the Goodreads that made me just be like, "Mm, this isn't worth my time. So I left. But I don't really write about books publicly anymore. This is really my only public chatter about books these days. So I started and I didn't reenact my old one because I just started a new Goodreads. Sure. So I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes if that's okay. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because (laughs) that darn Slayer book, (laughs) which I feel like everyone is very invested in me finally finishing. Mm -hmm. And I added it to my currently reading list and like... Five of our listeners just immediately liked it. Like, I know you guys are getting to it, okay? <laughs> People are just, yeah, they are really invested in your ability to finish that. I think because you talked about it quite formally and you have raised it a couple of times. I have. It's my own fault for keep mentioning it, but I genuinely like it. I don't know what it is about me not finishing it. As I have mentioned before, it was lent to me by Baby Groot's former babysitter, and I do at some point have to send her financial paperwork for the end of last year so i guess i will try to finish it in time to send the poor girl a t4 (laughs) 
Jeez. <laughs> I know, I'm terrible. So that remains a work in progress. Yes. Did you manage to knock anything off? I remember you were talking very affectionately about wanting to dig into mm-hmm. dig. I am glad you raised that. I started it. And I really do like it. Uh, it's denser than I expected. And I mean that in a really positive way. Okay. Um, so that's A.S. King's Dig, which is all about sort of a family that gets ripped apart by the financial decisions of the older generation. It's very interestingly told. It's really vignette style, kind of moving between characters. And all the characters have extremely distinctive voices, but they don't spend a lot of time introducing like who's talking now and what context you're in. Oh, okay. So you just got to figure it out. Yeah. And you've just got to kind of like sort of sink into it. And I haven't had time to sink into it. So Mm. I started it over the break and I got, oh, I don't know, I maybe a quarter of the way through and really enjoying it. But it's just one, a book that requires more of my attention than I have been able to attend to. Sure. Yeah. It's a new year. It's not always easy to just say, hey, I've got plenty of free time. I'm just going <laughs> to take a half day and read this book. And it's weird how I always think that Christmas is going to be like this time of relaxation. Like I have a toddler and parents and two sets of in-laws to balance. Like when did I think I was going to be reading exactly? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm at Christmas dinner and I'm just reading A.S. <laughs> King's Dig. Don't mind me, family. Oh, man, I wish I wish. And it's funny, because I don't know, I was talking to someone at at Groot's daycare this week. And they were like, Oh, man, so when you go home, you must just like drop off your kid and have like all this spare time. And I just I think I probably looked at her like she had six heads. I'm like, How is that a thing? (laughs) Anywho, but I did read a book that I didn't even mention. Okay, previously, and that I really enjoyed and would like to tell people about. Absolutely. Take it away. So it's a comic, and it's uh, called How I Made It to 18, A Mostly True Story by Tracy White. It's kind of, it fits in with our, it's kind of a funny story week, because it's a book about a girl who has basically a nervous breakdown, um, and she checks herself into a psychiatric hospital. So along the same lines, but from the perspective of a young woman. Okay. It's not new. I think it came out in 2011, and it is sort of much like Ned Vizzini's book, very much semi-autobiographical, to the point where the author's name is Tracy White, and she names the protagonist Stacy Black. (laughs) Yeah, but it's really quite lovely. One of the things I really like is that because it's a comic, you get sort of these illustrations of what's going on in terms of Stacy's perceptions of other people's perceptions of her, if that makes sense. okay. And the book frequently breaks into like these quote-unquote interviews with her friends and family but Hmm. it's not clear whether they're actual like whether it's these actual characters thinking or stacy thinking about these other characters so fascinating it plays around a lot with perception the art is really quite it's very charming it's like i don't know how to describe it it's not like realist or anything it's it's just very sort of um sketchy almost right and um yeah it's called how i made it to 18 a mostly true story and i really enjoyed it Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the great thing about a comic is that you can kind of just sit down and knock it off. So one of the reasons why Goodreads is a bad place is because <laughs> once you set the reading challenge, it's like, um, you're really behind. You're not going to, um, you're not going to make your goal. Oh, yeah. Um, excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. You're not going to make your goal. You are staring <laughs> down that deadline all year long. And that is one of the things, right? I, I really wanted to make 100 books last year and I didn't. I hit like 98. So I was like, oh, the Goodreads That's... reading challenge will motivate me. Or 97? Anyway, Devin's like, I think you could read three books today. It's like New Year's Eve. I'm like, I don't think I can read three books today, but I appreciate your faith in me. 
Also, I don't think 97 or 98 <laughs> books is too shabby, Brenna. Like, you should probably feel pretty solid about that. So I used to hit that mark of 100 books every year. Yeah. And then after I had Groot, I, I haven't hit it since. So there's like a little huh. bit of like, hmm. I'm going to get back there. <laughs> I know, it's almost like having a toddler as a time Do you think consumer. there's like a cause and effect going on there? <laughs> What's changed in What's this scenario? What's changed? So, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, one night uh, I got like an alert. I thought I had all the notifications turned off. I turn off all notifications on all apps from my phone because I don't need anybody yelling at me. So I turned off. I thought I had, but then I guess there's a separate notification for your reading challenge updates that I hadn't seen. And so I'm like minding my own business and it's like, uh, you're three books behind your goal for the year. And I was like, wow. I'm going to go run a bath. I'm going to run a bath and read a comic. I have to do this right now. Don't shade me, Goodreads. I don't need this from you right now. <laughs> oh, what about you, Joe? Did you fare better over the holidays than I did? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I do not have a baby Groot of my own. And I did have plenty of time to just sit around and do some reading. So I got through a fair number of things, but I'll just highlight two because they're kind of like-minded. Awesome. So one of them is one that I had talked about. So I did read Gretchen McNeil's hashtag murder trending. <gasps> you did! Did you I love it? I did. I liked it, and then the ending fell apart for me no! spectacularly. Oh. So folks, if you've forgotten, this is a book about a young girl who is framed for the murder of her younger sister, and she is set she is sent, rather, to Alcatraz 2.0, which is a reality television online streaming penitentiary where every once in a while someone is just murdered by a hired killer for the pleasure of viewing audiences around the world. So it's a little bit of Running Man, and it's a little bit of Wrongfully Accused, that kind of fun stuff. Mm. It's got a really solid premise. The writing is okay. It's a little bit pulpy. And then the end of the book, it's like Gretchen McNeil says, okay, I know that this is going to be a series because this is actually the first book. But it's like she just hits the gas pedal super freaking hard in that last act, and everything... The book is not believable to begin with, but it just becomes ridiculous at the end <laughs> to the point where I was like, what is even happening right now? It was very frustrating to end on that because I had been enjoying it. Like it's a very, I said, it's pulpy. So it's a really easy read. You can just kind of jump into it and go for like 200 pages and be really entertained. So that was frustrating. Oh, Joe, I feel like you've had just a string of like books you were super excited about that fell apart at the end. I mean, it's hard. Endings are hard. Endings are hard. That's a fair comment. Yeah. So the other one that I read, which is a little bit more successful and a little less sensational, is called One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. And I probably shouldn't have read this because this is will be on our read list later on because it's being made into a television series as Ooh. we speak. I'm excited because that's one of those books that I've gotten out of the library like four times and it's never made it to the top of my pile. So tell me more. Yeah, it's probably not on most people's top of read list because it's fairly slight. Mm. So this is about four students from very different backgrounds who each end up in detention on the same day because they have all discovered a random burner phone in their bag, which is against school policy. 
So there is a fifth student who is in detention with them, and he runs a rude, offensive, gossipy website about the school. And the idea is that he has dirt on each one of these students, and then he dies in a mysterious peanut allergy. And they are consequently not framed, but they are being investigated by the police. So it follows each of their different perspectives. Like they don't really have a relationship prior to this. So they end up becoming friends and confidants and they become media sensations. But they're also trying to clear their own names because the school sort of disavows them. Their parents don't know what to do with them. And they, they're under intense media scrutiny. And at different points, like, they each become the prime suspect. And, you know, it's a murder mystery. So the question is, who killed this person? And why are these four being framed? Wow. Yeah. It sounds sensational and Mm -hmm. fun. Is it fun? It is fun. Okay. Two of the four, of course, fall in love with each other. And there's, you know, a bad boyfriend off to the side. And there's, (laughs) like, a political activist who maybe can help them but doesn't want to get involved. I'm actually excited to cover this because I feel like it's a YA bingo in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot going on. Interestingly (laughs) enough, this is also the first in a series. So there is a sequel, which I may have added to my library holds list. Okay, I'm interested because it sounds very self-contained. So I'm interested to hear about the sequel. Yeah, I too felt the same way because it does wrap up. But I can see like there is more story to be told about these people, but the case, the actual murder investigation is wrapped up by the end of book one. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that once again is Karen McManus's One of Us is Lying. It is a great title. It's good. Even as I was putting together the uh, February forecast, which is our next mini-sode coming in a couple of weeks, some of these YA authors are super savvy marketers because there are uh-huh. some good titles in I YA. noticed that too. Yeah, I know. I know. You could almost go by the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although that probably serves us not well. Anyway. Yeah. Cool. So speaking of YA, Brenna. Oh, yeah. Speak <laughs> it right. We're going to talk about the definition of YA. Oh, would you start us off by reading the email that prompted this episode? Yes, I'm going to read a condensed version of it. Daryl, I apologize. Uh, He had quite a bit to say. Mm -hmm. So this was in response to our Watership Down week. Mm -hmm. And Daryl wanted us to talk about this because he had had difficulties getting into YA because he identifies as a boy. So he did not think that YA was actually intended for him. And Mm. some of the YA that he had read, such as John Green, he really disliked because he felt like it was pandering. Mm. So it seemed like YA was not being marketed to him. And Mm -hmm. the, the YA that he had consumed wasn't really working for him. Okay. And then, you know, you get to something like Watership Down or even something like Lord of the Rings, which is frequently marketed towards younger readers, even though... Arguably, you could say The Hobbit is YA, Lord of the Rings is adult fiction. Yep, yep. So he wanted us to have a little bit more clarity around why do we have certain parameters about how we're defining Mm -hmm. YA, who is the intended audience, and take it away from there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm starting to think of a definition, and every time I get four words into the definition, I'm like, oh, but so there are exceptions to everything I think that we're going to talk about today, and there's... It's hard to get away from the fact that there is just something about 
a book feeling YA. Mm-hmm. You know, like The Hobbit feels YA to me. And, and we could talk about reasons why around like coming of age stories and, yes. and that kind of thing. But then like I would hate to say that every YA has to be a coming of age story. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot going on in terms of how we define. But I think primarily and most importantly, it's typically a book about youth or about like in The Hobbit, someone in a youthful moment in life, which is to right. say Bilbo is about to embark upon a journey that's going to change him, mm-hmm. right? Which is very, is very much youthful. When he's young for a hobbit, right? <laughs> he is young for a hobbit. And combined with, and I think this is the critical piece, the focalization is either from the youthful perspective or sympathetic to that perspective. Like, for example, the reason why the virgin suicides we sort of established wasn't YA was because it's very much written by an older man looking back at a moment in his life with all of the experience and context and, you know, occasional sarcastic remark that comes with that age. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think for me, it's those two pieces. It's, It's a young person's story or a story that connects to some sort of significant coming of age moment. And the perspective is also of that age. It's not a looking back kind of narrative. Right. And one of the things that really came across when I was doing some research into this is that there is confusion about the distinction between young adult literature Mm -hmm. and then middle school literature. So people want to fight about like, where does the parameter begin and end for each of those? So I often see it framed by booksellers and librarians. They tend Mm -hmm. to use content as the dividing line. So the three categories, there's actually three categories that people fight over. It's middle grade, young adult and new adult. Okay, right. And so the one I most commonly hear is middle grade has no sex. Young adult can have a small amount of sex. And new adult has lots of sex. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. And the same thing with drugs. Middle grade has no drugs. Young adult can have some drugs. And a new adult has lots of drugs. Hmm. I mean, it's not always true, but that does tend to be where people who shelve books on behalf of young people tend to draw their lines because, you know, we have different standards of what we want people at different developmental stages to be reading, right? Right, yeah. Because I've seen a lot of people try to put age limits on it. So it's not about the content, it's about the intended readership. So you've got middle school is under double digits Mm -hmm. to maybe early digits, like a 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And then young adult literature is 13 to 19. And then as soon as you hit 20, it's adult, it's new adult fiction. Yeah. And I also see sort of like middle grade books tend to cover the junior high years, young adult books tend to cover the high school years, and new adult books tend to cover the leaving home or going to university years. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's really fraught too, because like, I mean, listeners will be surprised to know that I was a fairly nerdish, bookish teenager. What? (laughs) And I read very little young adult literature as a nerdy bookish teenager, because I was really eager to read grown up books. So yes, I was the exact same. And I think that's where Daryl was maybe coming from as well. And I think that actually also complicates this notion that there is age readership for Mm -hmm. some of these books, because then, of course, we get into this challenge where there's a hugely significant population of readers who are consuming young adult and middle grade who are adults. I've definitely circled back to YA at a time in my life when I was teaching young adults, but was 
on the cusp of leaving young adulthood myself, right? Okay. Was definitely, I was like, oh, you know, I want to read these stories. But we've also talked about why YA tends to be really compelling. Emotions are super heightened at that time in your life. And mm -hmm. every decision feels incredibly important and incredibly intense. And yeah, so it's not surprising. I don't think that adults want in on that a little bit. Well, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia mm -hmm. driving that. But yeah, there's there's something more vibrant and dynamic. And I found that when you and I were starting the podcast and we were really getting back into YA in a significant fashion, I found that I was missing that from some of yeah. the adult texts that I had been reading, right? There's a tendency to wallow. Yes, in some of this adult literature because it's about adult problems like yes. finances and sex and failing marriages and death. And while all of those things come into play in young adult literature, they're handled through the eyes of someone who is typically not as mature. Mm -hmm. So it's really about feeling your way through it. And to yes. me, the feeling part is where that vibrancy and the dynamicism Dynamis? No, dynamis? No, no. I don't even know what that word is that I'm trying to say. There's something dynamic about young adult literature. I agree completely. I think that is what makes them such popcorny books, and I don't mean that in. I yeah, mean we're not saying it in way. a disparaging way. No, because I find that a 200-page literary fiction novel versus a 200-page YA novel the YA novel will take me half the time to read. And partly it's because that feeling state propels you through the text, which is what makes them really, I think, really attractive books typically. And I think also really attractive for adaptation because mm -hmm. there's typically so much affect, like just so much feeling there. And I think too that the distinctions it's important to remember, right, that the distinctions are primarily useful for people who sell books. <laughs> They're not really yes. useful for anyone else, right? So, like, our I think our stance on this show is and always has been, like, you should read what you want to read. Absolutely. You should enjoy it. But I think when we're talking about categorizing books, on the one hand, YA is not a genre. It's a category, right? Yes. And I think that is so important. It is so important. At the same time, we couldn't play YA bingo if there weren't some generic tropes to right. this category right yeah so i think that's another reason why ya is a little bit different like if you think about other categories of literature like comics as a category it's hard to find sort of generic conventions across the body of comics like what does mouse have in common with archie right mm -hmm. but in ya and and i think we're, we're touching on a lot of what those things are coming of age strong affect huge consequences big stakes like that's all yeah. stuff that is sort of generically consistent across the category mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it is fascinating because, so I appreciate the fact that you brought up who distinguishes this as a mm -hmm. category and what gets shelved in what. And if we're being honest, a lot of this really does come from publishers mm -hmm. and people who are running bookshops because it's a way to distinguish a certain type of content. Mm -hmm. And to market to a specific audience. But yes, to that specific market. Mm -hmm. So I found this one Atlantic article. They, they had started a series. This is back, I think, in 2012. So it's a little outdated now. But they had started a series where they were talking about relevant YA texts. And, you know, they were interrogating the category and just talking about why it had become more popular. Like, this is right around the time that John Green was really exploding right. and so on. 
but they ran into problems because a lot of the readers actually wrote in asking for the definition of this very question because they had not provided it and they mm. were playing a bit fast and loose. Mm. So they provide a bit of a history. You know, they reference the fact that Catcher in the Rye was really one of those defying YA texts, even though it's not a young adult book. Mm-hmm. It was consumed primarily by young adult audiences mm-hmm. and therefore became this seminal defining text. Mm-hmm. And then it changed the way that people would write YA literature as a result. So you get something like The Chocolate War because Robert Cormier read J.D. Salinger. Right. But they definitely acknowledged the fact publishers and booksellers did this because it was also a way to say, here's a separate section intended for this audience. (laughs) Here's a way to find these books easier so that we can sell them more easily because they might get lost if they were shelved in adult fiction. And it's worth remembering that really this is all happening you know catcher in the rye is coming out about 10 years after literally the word teenager Mm -hmm. um and we have this period so like any category of humanity it was invented right and so you have this period from like the end of the victorian period to like middle of the edwardian period sort of spanning over the first world war where there's all this kind of anxiety about like what actually does it mean to be in this stage of life where you are potentially young and unattached and free and yet simultaneously at war and Mm -hmm. yet along with being at war especially for for young men away from home comes you know all kinds of things sex and drugs and booze right and being away from home and having access to all these things with seemingly limited consequences so we had this period of time where people were really really anxious about what young people were up to Mm And then that's followed starting in the 20s with this recognition that this is a pretty powerful demographic of people because they have money, right? Starting in the 20s and 30s, young people are working. Marriage is starting to be delayed, not to the extent that it is now, but starting to be delayed out of the late teen years and out of the early 20s. And and you've got all these people and they've got all this money and they've got all this freedom and um, we should probably start selling them stuff, yeah. <laughs> right? And so market uh, teenage as a marketing category, I mean, teenager, especially in North America, exists primarily as a marketing category. There's sort of a longer tradition in Europe of this this liminal space between adulthood and childhood as a very kind of romantic idea. But in America, it was always really strongly tied to what can we sell? And you think yeah, about the, capitalism. Yeah. That's what we think of when we think of the States. <laughs> and the advent of the automobile too, right? So suddenly this group of young people who have money, they also have mobility in a way that was not conceived of previously, right? The mass, the mass use of the automobile. So mm-hmm. it's a really sort of interesting thing that the concept of teenagehood, that the desire to write and sell books to this group of people this is all really heavily tied up in marketing. And that doesn't make it bad. Like I think books for young people is a good idea, but it's just interesting to think about it in its sort of true capitalist contexts because everything has capitalist context in North America. Yeah. So I have a question and this is, you can tell me if I'm venturing too far away, but we have people who are considered classics of this category, Mm -hmm. people like Judy Bloom and Essie Hinton. Mm -hmm. But then really, when we look at the books that we've covered, and possibly this is because we're talking about adaptations, Mm -hmm. and there wasn't a discovery that, you know, oh, we could make a ton of money making these books into movies until a little bit more recently. Mm -hmm. But why do you think there was such an explosion in popularity in YA 
really around like the mid to late 90s, but then particularly into the 2000s? Yeah, it's a great question. I've heard several arguments over the years. I think that the cultural phenomenon that was Harry Potter mm-hmm. had a huge impact on the idea that not only can you create art, not only is there a sustainable market for young people, uh, but you can get real, real rich <laughs> making art for young people. Right? <laughs> Ooh, and we're back to capitalism, folks. <laughs> but like, if you hit that zeitgeist right, I think Harry Potter was very instructive in terms of what a text that hits the zeitgeist right can A, mean to people, but B, accomplish financially. Financially, yeah. Seriously. The other thing that happens around that time period is September 11th and uh, war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has a lot to do with, first of all, uh, the rise of the dystopia in that time period is not surprising. Right. Also, the rise of fantasy escapism in that time period is not surprising. Mm -hmm. And I think also emerging out of that time is when we really get a lot of the most nostalgic of the YA books. Like, think about how many books we've read, Joe, that are targeted at teenagers, but definitely set in the 90s. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Weren't they an idealistic, you know, we were also young and naive and things were better back then, right? And I think Because we weren't at war. Exactly. Well, except we were, yeah. Yeah. Um, But there's there is a market for that, and I think you know. Don't forget that this is also the time when we started seeing like huge numbers of remakes of shows and movies from the seventies and Mm eighties. There was a real for about well, definitely for the first half of the two thousands. There was a real desire to harken back to something, anything else, you know, just anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. And I think that was a real growth moment for YA because it was also about adult readers being like, yeah, I don't want to read really depressing literary fiction right now on account of the news. And so I'm going to pick up this YA book about uh, two girls in love with the same boy and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think that hurt the category at all. No, no, that is fascinating. Yeah, I've seen people basically zero in on Harry Potter and Twilight. And if you think about it, that's encompassing everything that you've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. It's magic, Mm -hmm. it's love, Mm -hmm. it's love everlasting, Mm -hmm. and it's as far away from the mundane as you can get. I think this is really the important part, right? Because although there are lots of allegorical readings of Harry Potter, Harry Mm -hmm. Potter exists in and of itself, in a nostalgic version of Britain, in a version of Britain that did not have Tony Blair at the head, in a version of Britain that was not at war, not at war in the same kind of way, right? And so even when you are experienced or exposed to the muggle world in Harry Potter, it's, it's not contemporary Britain. The flip side of that is something like Twilight, where the real world, the world beyond forks, is simply never engaged with, right? No. There's no sense of like, also, there's a society where news happens sometimes. Like, there's none of that. And I yeah. think that marked a lot of the texts of that period. I think the shift that we've seen in the later 2000s and the 2010s has been a flipping of that script and a much stronger interest. You know, you've got lots of YA books dealing with like, My dad is a soldier with post-traumatic stress disorder. You've got lots Mm -hmm. of YA texts sort of turning back and and saying like, no, we're actually going to have to have some of these conversations. Yeah. But interestingly enough, we've talked about that where this Mm -hmm. is where we now get cultural pundits and particularly people who are watching book sales and movie adaptation grosses saying, oh, this flip, this switch towards realist YA, which we talked quite a bit about around the hate you give, I recall. 
this. Where they're now saying, oh, you know, the category is dying out. It's not as successful anymore. And they're trying to pin this idea that the real world woes is what is accounting for these sales slippages. And I think simply put, we've actually just seen the category and authors stepping up and saying Mm -hmm. that there's still room for these kinds of texts. It's not like we've seen fewer love stories or fewer escapist dystopias. It's just that people are also hungry for a realist YA that reflects some of the that we're wading through every day. Yeah. Sorry, language. (laughs) I think so too. And I think, I mean, I think that is what we're going to see next. I think we're going to see lots of YA stories about climate change and its ramifications. I think we're going to see YA stories about the rise of populism and fascism. I think that is what is coming next. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure all the pundits at the Atlantic are going to be super upset about it. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that ultimately... One of the things about YA as a category is that it is written primarily by adults. And I think that what you end up with is almost a delay in that this generation of teenagers who are so passionate about the climate crisis, they have to get old enough to be able to publish those YA stories about the climate crisis. Like we're always on a little bit of a maybe five to 10 year delay. Right. And so I I think that's an interesting factor too, is that by the time the books start coming out, there's an appetite among people who want to be dismissive of the category entirely to say like well who cares about this right now but like it takes time for people's stories to be told Mm -hmm. and as we've talked about it takes time even for a book to get published yep it does yep uh, I think maybe we should leave it there because I we are too. starting to go into a really <laughs> other interesting topic, which is who are the gatekeepers and, you know, who decides what is good YA? Who are the arbiters of taste? That's another good Minnesota episode, I think. Yes, I think so as well. Cool. Okay. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for the question. I think this is actually a really great Minnesota topic to kick off the new year with. Yeah. Give us some context for once. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) You know what? We like to do things in a backwards way. (laughs) Thanks so much. And keep writing in with your Minnesota ideas. You can hit us up with some quick hits on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSpod. Um, But especially for Minnesota suggestions, especially if you want to contextualize them a little bit, that's a great thing to send us an email about, Mm -hmm. uh, HKHSpod at gmail.com. And if you want to continue this conversation on Twitter, you can find Joe where, Mr. Joe? At B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Mm-hmm. And I guess, are we teasing our next book? Oh, we absolutely are. Okay. No. I'm leaving it to you. Go tease. Okay. So <laughs> as promised, next week we will be back to regular sewed format. Ah, and... uh, you're just using the word now. You're just using the word now. <sighs> I made fetch happen. I made fetch happen. Okay. Okay. Calm <laughs> down over there. <laughs> So next week, we'll be, we will be back with a listener suggestion. We're traveling down under. We're going to be looking at the book and film of Looking for Alibrandi. Awesome. And folks, we found that the film was a little bit difficult to track down. So if you do have access to Canopy, I can tell you that it is currently available on there. And all you need is a library card to access that service. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So come back next week as we... Look for Alabrandi. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.